Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Meredith Broussard. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, May 7th. And first of all, I'd like to once again welcome my co-host for the second week in a row, Meredith Broussard. Meredith is a data journalism professor at New York University, where she studies the many ways artificial intelligence is seeping into our world, good and bad, and how we can do a better job of explaining how AI works. She's the author of a book called Artificial on Intelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. Meredith, thanks for co-hosting again. April, it is so great to be here, and we have such an exciting show lined up for today. Yes, uh, so many stars. On today's show, we'll talk to historian Mar Hicks about the tech sector's longtime aversion to organized labor and what it means for current worker disputes at places like Google and Uber. And then we'll talk about early imaginings of what the Internet should be or could be, the most successful which envisioned a digital world that is free from government oversight and regulation. Alexis Madrigal from The Atlantic will join our show in order to talk about why that vision is starting to fade. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Uber and Lyft drivers across the U.S. are planning a strike on Wednesday ahead of Uber's upcoming IPO, which is projected to land the ride-hail giant a valuation that tops $90 billion. That's just the latest chapter in a recent trend where people who work in the tech industry are starting to organize. Historically, the tech sector hasn't been very friendly to organized labor, and here to talk about that is Mar Hicks, a historian of technology and gender. Mar also wrote a book called Programmed Inequality, how Britain discarded women technologists and lost its edge in computing. Mar, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Mar, you're a labor historian, so I'm particularly interested in hearing from you about Silicon Valley's historical attitude toward organized labor, because it's my understanding that all of these perks of Silicon Valley, like uh, the companies that do your laundry or unlimited fancy Whole Foods snacks. Uh, These are all perks that are designed to combat the rise of organized labor and that the high salaries are a way of avoiding having to deal with unions. Yeah, I definitely think that's true to a certain extent. In some ways, it's also just, you know, the dictates of the labor market. So if um, a skill set is, you know, needed and there aren't many people with it, that's going to drive wages up. But historically, you're 100% right. Um, Silicon Valley and uh, tech, basically in the U.S. and in the U.K., um, they've been very, very antagonistic to any sort of labor organization. And the people within these industries although they've tried in the past to organize, a lot of the people working in these industries were also not so keen on labor organizing because they like to see themselves as more aligned with um, management. You know, they were professional white collar workers who saw themselves as more aligned with management than say uh, working class workers. And employers, you know, ranging from uh, IBM to all of the other big companies that have been around for a long time, they uh, they really played upon this idea of no, you're really more aligned with management to um, to sort of tamp down on any efforts at unionization. 
But that seems to be a conflict with the case of Uber drivers because uh, the Uber drivers are all constructed as independent contractors, uh, not employees. And it seems like they're in a position that ordinarily they would be employees and they would be organizing in a labor union at this point. Yeah, exactly. What we're seeing here with Uber is really interesting because these are workers who are essentially tech workers. They're creating all of this wealth and value for a tech company, and yet they don't actually get to participate in having the perquisites of working at a tech company because, as you say, they are contractors. They're seen as somehow um, not really part of the company, even though they're absolutely essential. And in fact, that devaluation of their labor is also essential. And keeping that workforce atomized so they can't unionize is also part of, you know, it's necessary for Uber to be continually um, profitable and continually successful. So I think what the workers are doing in that case, um, and there have been some similar movements as well with people who do sort of digital piecework, like on Amazon's Mechanical Turk, I think it's really, really important. And um, you're 100% right that if it weren't for sort of the um, technological barriers to organization um, that were sort of put in place by making these folks contractors and sort of atomizing them as a casualized labor force, they, you know, probably would have organized for better paying conditions much earlier. They would have been able to. We're seeing worker organizing actually mounting gains from within Google's headquarters, like the ending of forced arbitration, for example. You know, and this comes from workers actually walking out, from having concrete demands, from actually tying their struggle in with contractors. But how do we know if labor organizing amongst workers who aren't considered employees is working, though? I mean, Google uh, workers have or labor really has aligned themselves with contractors within the company. But I think it's going to be pretty hard with uh, with Uber, at least, to know uh, if the driver organizing is actually affecting the company. Sure. Well, I guess one of the things you can look at is the stock price and see what happens to um, the valuation of the company, given all of the ongoing, probably, labor problems it's going to be having. Um, I also think that, you know, it's not like something gets done in one strike or in one go. And uh, when Uber and Lyft drivers have gotten together and had collective actions in the past, I mean, we have seen them accomplish things. We have seen them um, shift the conversation and uh, in certain cases actually accomplish particular goals. I remember there was an incident when, you know, the, uh, the Muslim ban was put into effect. And if I recall correctly, um, Uber and Lyft drivers were Essentially, they were asked to be uh, put into the position of scabs because taxi drivers said they weren't going to go to the airports. And um, collectively, a lot of Uber and Lyft drivers said, no, we're not either. Um, We're not going to uh, do things that are going to hurt the protests that are going on at the airports. And so I thought that that, you know, that instance was a really good example of the fact that, yes, um, people have impact. It doesn't you don't have to be. Um, as close to the halls of power as, you know, the white-collar Google workers who were able to take down um, Project Maven and, you know, um, had a lot of impact on Project Dragonfly. Mm -hmm. All of that is terrific. And they definitely have had a lot of press for that impact, and deservedly so. But it doesn't mean that uh, the workers who are 
less privileged are um, going to be any less effective because honestly, there's more of them. One thing that's really interesting here is that, you know, Uber's kind of uh, post-Kalanick era decline really began with the strike that you were talking about. Uber was perceived to have been breaking the taxi strike in early 2017, and that led to delete Uber and then, you know, so many uh, more things that kind of took that house of cards down. But clearly, uh, this is another era of the company that's that's also kind of bookending with another strike uh, and it's a driver organizing. So clearly organized labor is not inconsequential for Uber. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's what history shows us as well. Um, You know, when you look at computer worker strikes in the past, in my book, Programmed Inequality, I talk about Britain in particular. Uh, And so I'll take an example from that. Relatively few numbers of workers then had to strike to basically take down whole computer installations. And what's really interesting about that history is that these workers were at that point predominantly women and they were in jobs that were considered very low level. So in some cases they were operators and programmers. But in other cases, they were data entry staff. They were the punchers and they raised hell and they got in a lot of cases what they wanted and needed, um, which was better treatment and better pay because um, they acted as a block. And even though they were considered to be de-skilled workers, they weren't and not anybody could do those jobs. And, you know, the same is true of the folks who are driving for Uber and Lyft. Um, these are not de-skilled jobs. Driving a taxi is not a de-skilled job. So why would we think that driving another car under a different kind of economic model doing the same thing is a skillless job? Well, Mar, this is a really good uh, transition to the other thing that I wanted to talk with you about today, uh, which is the idea of women demanding better treatment and better pay at tech companies. Because the Google walkout was very powerful recently at Google. And last week, we had a Google sit-in, which was a response to retaliation by Google uh, against the organizers of the Google walkout. Yeah, and that's another sign that um, these folks who are organizing are having an effect, right? Because they are a fly in Google's ointment. Google is actually going as far as retaliating or allegedly retaliating against the folks who organized the walkout last year and then commemorated it with another action, uh, the sit-in this year, and you know, added to the list of complaints that Google was actually retaliating against them. Uh, So I think that what is going on at Google is very important because Google is sort of the 300-pound gorilla in a lot of ways. And what happens with the movement there is going to impact a lot of other um, thinking about what's possible in terms of getting these companies to be more responsible, in terms of getting them to be more... um, you know, answer to the public more, and also in terms of what can be done with antitrust measures. So I do think that all of the issues that these largely women organizers, but there are um, folks of other genders, folks who are non-binary, I believe there are also um, some men involved in the organizing team, they're doing a really big thing by shining a spotlight on what's going on at Google with pay grievances, harassment, people working on projects that they're morally opposed to work on, and then the backlash that they're getting from their employer. 
Well, Mara Hicks, thank you so much for joining us. I want to add that uh, their book is called Programmed Inequality, How Britain Discarded Women Technologists and Lost Its Edge in Computing. It was so great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, we'll talk to Alexis Madrigal, a staff writer at The Atlantic, about his piece, The End of Cyberspace. It's all about how one prophetic vision of a totally free and unregulated Internet is starting to break down. That's coming up next. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Our guest today is Alexis Madrigal, a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of Powering the Dream, The History and Promise of Green Technology. He wrote a piece in The Atlantic recently called The End of Cyberspace. Alexis, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Alexis, I was so excited to read this piece. I think it might be my very favorite Alexis Madrigal piece ever. (laughs) Uh, So I was particularly excited to read it because uh, as I was researching my book, the most fascinating untold history to me was about the way that hippies were on communes and then the communes failed. And then exactly these same people transitioned into this uncharted world of cyberspace. So I love that you got into this history, but then you also uh, went into a kind of radical thing I had never heard before, which was the idea that this hippie ideology had failed, that the idea of cyberspace was over. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. You know, it came about because, you know, so much of my work has ended up kind of weaving around the early threads of thinking around the Internet here in the Bay, which run through um, hippies and Stuart Brand and the whole Earth catalog and a particular strand of hippies, to be clear. And then in the last few months, as I've been like looking at the news, I've seen that kind of like the original framings that a lot of these people uh, had for how the internet worked and how people were going to be like online. I'm like air quoting here on a podcast, but you know what I'm saying, online scare quotes, uh, that basically it was breaking down all over the place, that this idea that had informed so much of the development of the internet just kind of has has outlived its usefulness. And you see it in the way that governments have taken control of networks, like in the Chinese model. You also see it in the way that people have a, a new recognition that if Elon Musk says something on Twitter, it's the same as if he says it anywhere else. And so therefore, he needs to sort of respect the rules of the securities markets. Like all of these things are, are recognitions, I realize, that the concept, which a lot of people have been critiquing for many years, um, is actually breaking down like out in the world among the people who do the technology creation, who do the regulation, um, and, and among everyday people. Yeah, it's so wild to me that originally we had this idea that cyberspace was something like 
the North Pole or Antarctica. Like it was it was beyond the reach of government. And for many years now, we have actually had national territories on the Internet. Like you can't go to Europe from America and still stream the same TV shows, for example. Right. Uh, but people are still kind of holding on to this notion that cyberspace is a place apart. It's so fascinating yeah. to me. Well, and don't you think that, I mean, part of it is, at least it feels to me, that there is this kernel in there that something different is happening. And that while it is something that is occurring within national borders, because there's a server somewhere and there's a client somewhere, and all those things are interacting within a national border, that the level of porosity is high enough and the levels of friction are low enough across borders that it is a different kind of interaction, which maybe suggests that it's some kind of different space. Um, and that may also just be like a 90s internet kids nostalgia talking. Maybe it is just the same shit as like, you know, going to Safeway and going, you know, to a website are the same thing. Maybe, you know, I, I'm not I'm actually unresolved on that question. Well, I do actually go to a website and go to Safeway for exactly the same kind of stuff. So I don't know. Maybe they are the same. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, it's it's true, you know, particularly as the internet apps have like extended, you know, their tentacles ever deeper um, into just daily life. Um, it does kind of feel like these things have grown towards each other and that part of it isn't just like the breakdown of cyberspace um, from the sort of regulatory side, but also like cyberspace like came out of that wherever that is and into our lives, <laughs> you know. Um, and now lots of things work in the physical world the way they used to work um, in just only on the internet. Uh, push a button, something happens, you know, now push a button and a car shows up at your house, you know? You know, it, it's interesting. We're talking about the internet, how it's kind of turned into a mall or, or, you know, different stores that you go to or websites like stores. But the idea that the internet should be separate from government is just so ahistorical because the internet, of course, was invented by the military, right? Or, or was very much a product of government invention. Uh, and so one thing that I've always found so fascinating by the early and, and mid-90s fascination of this kind of digital frontiersman is the kind of obsession with divorcing the, the history of the internet from its actual beginnings, which which is a military invention. And, and in doing so, of course, uh, you know, argued so, uh, maybe that was one of the reasons why they argued so passionately for uh, untwisting any sort of, you know, government interaction with the internet uh, from the internet because the government was so deeply intertwined with it from the beginning. Um, and, and that really brings us to a document you bring up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, yeah, which is a libertarian document uh, by John Perry Barlow, who argues for kind of separating the internet from the government. I think it's the most important document uh, that argues that. Well, and it says, you know, you have no space here, like argues from a position of authority over this new thing. And it really, uh, like so many other things, kind of like really makes you ask, like, well, what is like the I of that statement? Or like, what's the we of that if it's not groups of citizens, you know? And I, and I think what's kind of fun about that is it does sort of suggest that there are other configurations of social power outside of the nation state, which for those of us who were interested in at least the academic manifestations of anarchism and things like that um, are actually like really interesting. Um, I think, you know, particularly in a world that I grew up in in the 90s where people are trying to figure out, wait, 
in a globalized world, corporations hold all this power and we also have these other levels of government. Well, what about like other configurations of people that don't have uh, a government affiliation, but nonetheless can speak from a position of authority around a community? And like when you put it in those terms, at least to me, I think all sorts of like good thoughts about that. You know, when you put it in terms of like, it's essentially the market speaking or it's like, you know, um, it's, it's this purely kind of individualistic framework of people making rational market-based decisions. And that like, that's who's saying to the government, you're not welcome here. Then I have like a different set of feelings about it. And I actually think that both things, that's what's so crazy about this history. Both of those ideas of like who may be speaking in that document or what may be speaking in that document are actually at play. Um, it's one of the things that I think has made it a document that strange as it is with the texture of language that is sort of like Milton through like a cyber freaking filter, uh, <laughs> still like ha- has power, you know, like you're, it, it still is something where you, you read it and you go, wow, this is like an interesting thing, you know? I think it's important to say that that's cyber freaking with a PH, right? Yes, that's right. Yes, cyber freaking with a PH. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that's so interesting to me about this is that we have these outsider voices who are claiming authority. So uh, people like John Perry Barlow are kind of co-opting the voice of the Internet, saying we are the ones who are making the rules and we are the ones who are making the code. And therefore, we have all of this power. And it's very much associated with being an outsider. And for many years, we valorized that white male countercultural voice and said, oh, yes, this is the voice of the Internet. Uh, So in today's world, we're acknowledging that there are many other voices uh, that should be heard, but the technical framework and the social framework of the Internet is actually still built around this vision that started in the 1960s. Uh, and it's very much entwined with these libertarian ideals. It's a really great point. You know, it's it, there's no, um, it is so individualistic. I think that's the thing that I have kept coming back to. Like the idea that you are an atomistic individual, a mind, you know, floating around, as opposed to groups who, who can't escape the violence done to their bodies, you know, um, that, that that would have to be a part of your group identity because of the way that uh, our society is structured, um, not just in the U.S., but everywhere, around gender lines, uh, around pigmentocracy lines. And I think that it's kind of only, you know, very financially comfortable um, white men who would have come up with this, this particular version. And I want to add, I, only, you know, just speaking as like a kid who was growing up, you know, one Mexican family in rural Washington state, um, there was something incredibly empowering about kind of borrowing that megaphone in this bodiless cyberspace. You don't have to uh, reckon with all of history. But then it turns out, of course, that that stuff comes rushing back in and it all gets flooded out and it becomes another way of like generating enormous wealth for, you know, 10 people. 
You know, something to note about the kind of countercultural element of Barlow's declaration is that it was penned in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum. Right? <laughs> and, uh, ah, he was attending a as, as, a, as a very wealthy man, as an investor. Uh, he wrote it in 1996. And something that you, you mentioned, Alexis, about kind of the liberatory uh, resonance of the kind of thought that he brought up is that this was happening uh, really at a moment when uh, the anti-globalization movement was was mounting. And this was when people were realizing that I think in order to fight increasingly globalized capital, right, as corporations were were expanding across borders with NAFTA and the Free Trade Agreement of the Americas, that uh, activists would have to become globalized and networked too. And I think that there was an excitement amongst activist communities or amongst people who kind of were, were leftist and thinking about, like, how can we use the, the borderless potential of the Internet to network and to grow as well? And not everybody was necessarily thinking in these kinds of anti-government terms, but I think that the borderless nature was very attractive to a lot of people who who felt oppressed by institutional power. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the way that it seemed to offer an asymmetrical end run around entrenched um, media interests, around entrenched industrial interests, around all, all of these things was was so exciting seeming. And you know, this is a, a kind of odd connection, um, but it's it's one that I've been kind of developing in my book, which is that. Um, you know, the Panthers are the other global movement that occurs around the same time as the hippies and the whole earth catalog. Like both these things are exploding in the Bay at the same time. Um, Huey Newton, as he's sort of just about as he's descending into kind of drug haze of the time uh, in 73, kind of develops this theory that he calls revolutionary intercommunalism, which is essentially exactly what you described, April, like that you needed to have non-governmental forces that were smaller than a nation state, that were, weren't about, it wasn't, it was explicitly not Marxist, it weren't taken over, you know, the country and the means of production. It was community by community linking together to counter the corporate power of globalized in, imperial America. And that idea kind of prefigures a lot of the anti-globalization stuff by a good margin. And I do think one major reason is that people in the Bay had this kind of upfront view of both the development of computation and what that might mean and the what they called the technology question, the Panthers called the technology question, uh, and how that would play out for marginalized communities. And so one of the things that I've been thinking a ton about is, you know, Stuart Brand, who's kind of considered the central kind of twisty tie in a lot of this um, cyberspace and the counterculture stuff, you know, he kind of described one future for, you know, let's call it like the aristocracy, you know. Um, and then there's also the sort of ghetto futurism, you know, where they're like, no, everybody is going to fall into the category of the unemployables, the lump and proletariat, as the Panthers called it. And those folks kind of describe a lot of people we know as the precarious like labor force. But the full picture of the future like requires both of those characters and both of those ways of seeing the world, because that is kind of what has happened that like one set of people went one way and then a whole other set of people went the other way. 
Yeah, well, which brings us back to what happened on the communes, right? Because the idea of the commune was that it was this physical space apart, but there were no people of color on the communes. And if you were a woman on the communes, like you really ended up barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. Like there was mm-hmm. nothing feminist or nothing empowered about it. Uh, and yeah. so I think that we need to, I think we need to kind of learn from history as we think about the next stage of the internet. Oh, totally. I mean, that commune experience, you know, sometimes I've tried to like, because of course, for me, first learning about communes, you know, I but they was sounded like, so great, right? Oh, my God. So it awesome. sounded so fun. Yeah. But then when you look into, you know, the experience, you know, there's like, the, there's a few empowering stories like Ina May Gaskin and the, you know, kind of rise of the nurse midwives. I mean, there are a couple of examples you can point to where you say like, hey, something good happened there, you know. Um, but like, by and large, exactly what you're saying, it reproduced every like racist patriarchal structure that existed outside of the communes, on the communes. Um, and it's... Um, I, I think you're right that uh, the idea that you can have a space apart from history, government, uh, social change, and as importantly, the rest of everybody else who wasn't able to like escape from their circumstance or didn't have a computer and an internet connection, you know, in 1995, which was almost everybody, um, that you you can't live apart, you know. And it's funny because just to weave the one last social movement from that time into this discussion. You know, the environmental movement at that time, you know, magazine launched called uh, Man Not Apart. And, you know, the idea was just that, like, the environment, such as it was, included people. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that the same thing is kind of true as we are trying to coming to terms with all of the technology that has become so a uh, crucial part of every the way we do everything that, you know, the, the people are like all people are fundamentally part of this system. And so what can be developed? What, how can technology work so that all of those people can be included in that space? So I want to, to move forward a little bit because, you know, Barlow's focus was incredibly influential and inspirational. I mean, Barlow went on to found the Electronic Frontier Foundation where, where I used to work, uh, you know, pioneers of the Internet, kind of that people who started Apple and, and uh, people who went to work at Google, like Schmidt cites the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. Uh, Mitch Kapoor was one of the founders of EFF, right? Like this was an incredibly influential strain of thinking, but it really focused on the harms that the government would pose to the openness of the Internet, not the harms that corporations would pose free from government regulation. And we now have just an incredibly corporatized, unregulated Internet because those who went on to define what a healthy internet is or those who kind of held that definition and then took the mantle of advocacy for that were coming off this kind of anti-government uh, uh, regulation kind of treaty. And so, you know, this is what's come to define a healthy internet. It's clearly not working. And one thing that – or I, we could, I can say it looks like it's not working because we I think you can say just, it's uh, clearly not working. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been – I would say it's just been a, a real, like, uh, caravan of, you know, horrors over the past few years. Uh, and so you wrote in your piece that there seems to be a shift in thinking happening now, that maybe this didn't work. And, and you're seeing, we're seeing this manifest in a lot of different policy proposals and conversations. Yeah. And, you know, I I think um, you can trace some of it back to people who were mostly doing kind of like, 
the torching of the effigy kind of time. Um, you know, you go back to like an Evgeny Morozov, you know, he writes this thing called the net delusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's been a lot of people, you know, the people who argued against what they call digital dualism, you know, that basically saying there's no such thing as an online and offline self that we, once the thing exists, we're kind of just part of experience. Um, and, you know, there's a whole a, a million other people who've also made smart and, and good critiques of the topic. I think the question is, is there a paradigm that will be as seductive and uh, as, as widely mm-hmm. adopted? I mean, th- there was th- a lot of the things, that, a lot of the work we've been doing has been to kind of tear down a lot of the idea, a lot of the things that that weren't true anymore, or maybe never were true about how cyberspace worked. But like, what is it then? You know, so much of the work, it it feels a little bit like where psychology is right now. You know, they had all of these kind of theories, then they get behavioral psychology, then that whole thing kind of collapses um, under the, the weight of like a lot of bad research. And so now everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, what is psychology? How does this work, you know? Um, which is, even though it's a been like a dominant way of thinking about everything for, you know, more than a hundred years, people are still kind of like, what is this field? And I kind of, I, I feel kind of similarly right now about the internet. Like we, I, I just keep waiting to get some theorization of this thing that I work on every day and have been on for, you know, 25 years, um, how do you regulate platforms in ways that generate, you know, good and fair outcomes? You know, I mean, just like all of these things, I, breaking up these things, I feel like it's, we've reached the stage. It's like literally like, no, let's just break them up, which is fine, you know, but like there's no positive vision of that really aside from, oh, now we'll just do better market competition this time because that was the problem. You know what I mean? Like it's a really, not that it's a terrible idea to do that, but I'm just saying, it's so like that's it feels like a little bit like we're don't have the next paradigm in place yet. I think what we need to do is we need to iterate. We came <laughs> up with this uh, with this idea in the 1970s of what we thought the internet was going to be, what we thought cyber cyberspace was going to be, and uh, it has proven to be problematic. So you know maybe we need to iterate and uh, and revisit our thinking on it. Alexis, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This is a great conversation. Awesome. Thanks, guys. One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Meredith, what story would you like to share with us this week? I would like everybody to check out The Raisin Situation by Jonah Engel Bromwich in The New York Times. It is this fantastic story that shows us really what business journalism can be. It's about the crisis in the raisin industry. Now, I haven't eaten a little box of uh, sun-made raisins in years, and I discovered that I'm not alone in that. And in fact, there's all kinds of fascinating drama happening behind the scenes in the raisin industry, including death threats and uh, possible collusion and all kinds of things that I never associated with little dried grapes. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I really liked about this story is that it got into the kind of advertising behind the curtain. Um, it, it really brought up the iconic California Dancing Raisins and how effective that campaign was. And uh, it was just such a, a whole story, right, of the snack food that has been such a central part of our lunchboxes for decades. Yeah. And those California Raisins, they are so iconic. My favorite line in the story is when uh, the author writes about how Paul McCartney Courtney's representative uh, called up to try and get a videotape of the California Raisins so Paul McCartney could watch it on repeat. (laughs) I mean, this is effective advertising, right? And and I even forget that the California Raisins were to advertise raisins. (laughs) So uh, but but yeah, the story is just full of intrigue and deception and cunning and and then you just keep remembering, oh, my gosh, we're talking about raisins and also to like really, you know, agriculture in the Central Valley of California, which is controlled by just a few families that have a stranglehold on water. Uh, And so uh, I really recommend uh, people check it out, too. One of my favorite things that I've read in a while. So great tab, Meredith. Great. The Raisin Situation, major snack food drama. So my tab this week is another podcast. It's uh, two episodes that aired from the New York Times' show The Daily. Uh, It's just a two-part series entitled The Chinese Surveillance State. Uh, And it is kind of featuring the fantastic journalism from Paul Mozora, a technology reporter for The New York Times who is based in Shanghai. And episode one goes into uh, how China is really at the forefront of a new form of government by surveillance or governance that's kind of dictated by surveillance uh, that's primarily focused on how uh, the Chinese government has been expanding things like facial recognition to control minority populations in parts of the large country and how China's surveillance system uh, is, is actually now being used as a model that other countries are adopting, really chilling stuff on how uh, knowing everything about people, where they move, uh, who they're talking to, when they leave their house, who they're with can function to uh, control our lives, right? And, you know, this is we're talking about a government doing it. But all of this information that, that the Chinese government is is using to do this, uh, it's the type of data that we all kind of accidentally produce or produce, you know, unwittingly by having these devices on us, Um And it's just incredibly well done, very chilling. Part two is a kind of more first-person story of an American citizen whose family members uh, were detained in Chinese re-education camps. And uh, it just really, again, kind of 
gets into how uh, – the Chinese government is using surveillance in, in absolutely terrifying ways. Um, and I think that we should all be listening to this and, and following this reporting that's coming out from the New York Times on this topic because it's a very hard reporting to do in China. It really is. It's just very well done as well in terms of putting it in context in a way that we can understand being so far away. You know, I'm reminded of what we were talking about earlier with our early concepts of what the internet would be. And I think... Very few people imagined that this level of surveillance mm. would be possible or that this level of surveillance that we're seeing in China nowadays uh, would even be desirable. So like people weren't thinking of the data trail that would, would be left uh, when we were completely saturated by a kind of a networked world. Yeah, because we didn't have that model anywhere in history. So it just... I think to a certain extent, it didn't occur to people that this could or would happen. Yeah, I, I, you know, wasn't around when people were thinking about what could or not happen with the Internet. I really grew up with the Internet. Uh, but I certainly growing up with it didn't think about my data and I didn't think about how it could be used against me. Uh, and really the awakening to that happened, at least in the United States, with Snowden. And I, I just am tr really trying to wrap my head around what's happening in China, the, the human rights abuses. And I'm trying to follow it very, very closely because it's actually it's not uh, an imagination of how bad it could be. It's something that's happening now. Um, so really recommend this tab, uh, my, my tab this week for folks. And that does it for our show. Sorry to end on such a bleak note, but uh, important journalism is important. So we'll always continue to prop that up. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow me and Meredith on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Meredith is at Mayor Broussard. Thanks again to our guests, Mar Hicks and Alexis Madrigal. You can follow Mar on Twitter at Hist of Tech, and you can follow Alexis on Twitter at Alexis Madrigal. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways large and small. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Ganadi Joe Johnson, who engineered for us today at YR Media in Oakland. And that does it for the show. We'll see you all next week. And thanks, Meredith. It's our la your last show with us, but it was so much fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, April. Thanks, listeners. Bye-bye. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.